For the rest of us, grab your Bibles, please, and open to Mark. We are continuing through Mark. Mark chapter four, uh, Mark chapter five, excuse me. We are starting Mark chapter five today. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see a blue one in the pew back in front of you. Uh, we love those Bibles, and we love to give those Bibles away. Uh, so if you need a blue Bible, if you need a Bible, you don't have one, if yours has fallen apart, uh, if you need one in this translation, the ESV, go ahead and grab that. We love giving those away, so please feel free to give that uh, to somebody you know, or if you need that, please take that home with you as well. Okay, Mark chapter 5. Mark's toward the back of the Bible. It's the second book in the New Testament. Um, Mark is a biography about the life of Jesus, our Savior. Um, toward the beginning of the book of Mark, there's a big number 5. That's chapter 5. We're going to start there in a moment. Okay. Uh, after we finish this chapter together, or these 20 verses together rather, uh, I sure hope that you read in this story and you, you come to this conclusion. If Jesus can do that for this guy, He can surely do it for me too. So as we enter into this chapter together, whatever baggage you're bringing to Jesus he can handle it. Whatever sin you are bringing to Jesus, He can handle it. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter who you did it to. It doesn't matter what you feel about that sin. Jesus' shoulders are broad and strong enough to take your sin away. No matter what you're bringing to the table, Jesus is powerful enough, strong enough, He is loving enough and merciful enough to take care of any spiritual ailment that you have. So, the big idea of this, this chapter that we're about to, these few verses that we're about to jump in together, the big idea is this. The function of sin and the forces of evil is to distort and destroy the image of God in humanity. But the function of Jesus is to restore the image of God in humanity and to restore mankind to God Himself. So let me tell you why I think that's a big idea. Let's jump in together. We're going to read these verses together and then we'll talk about what they mean and what's going on here and then we'll apply it to our lives. So Mark chapter 5, big number 5, we're going to go like, it's going to go like this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, a man demon-possessed. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. That's a big sentence. Underline that sentence. Keep it in your mind. No one had the strength to subdue him. 
Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. He was shrieking and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him, he begged Jesus earnestly, not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into those pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the, in the city and in the country. And the people came to see, it, see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled what a cool story what a crazy story mark is the gospel that likes to get things done he likes action and we certainly got action in this story here what an incredible story so let's take it apart what's going on here what's happening what's the setting so you remember last week boy these disciples have had a whirlwind of a few hours haven't they remember last week they start from one end of the Sea of Galilee. They get in their boats. They go about halfway, and what happens? Boom! The biggest storm these expert sailors had ever seen. They were afraid for their lives. They thought they're all going to die. And what's Jesus doing? He's asleep in the boat. And so they, Jesus, wake up! Don't you care if we die? And what's Jesus do? Peace! Be still! And the storm was calmed. The storm was calmed. Normally, it's about a two-hour trip from one side of the sea to the other. However, as you can imagine, a storm like that probably gets you off course. And so they had to, they had to adjust their course, and they finally hit the eastern side of the shore. 
And they arrived in what Mark says is the, the country of the Gerasene. This is just an area. It's an area on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we think now, it's kind of fun to know where these places were and to kind of find where we think Jesus was. Uh, there's a town on the east side of this lake called Cursa. And we think it's there because the, the, sh- the shore near Cursa has a steep slope. So Mark talks about the, the pigs f- flying down a steep slope. We see a steep slope. 40 yards inland from that area. Uh, That area also has cavern tombs nearby, and so it seems like that's a great place. It's about one or two miles away from the Decapolis, and so we think that that's where it was. And so you can imagine the feeling, whew, finally we made it across the sea, we're alive. This guy Jesus is doing some scary stuff, but we're here and we're alive. Surely we can catch our breath, and then immediately as Jesus' foot hits the dirt, what happens? This crazy man, this man possessed by the demon, demons immediately pursues Jesus. And if you remember correctly, they got in the boat as the sun was going down. They sailed for a few hours, got caught in the storm and hit the beach. It's probably the middle of the night. How would you like to, to experience that? You leave the storm behind. Your adrenaline is still flowing. You're not sure what's going on. Jesus has scared you. Uh, the, the last part of that storm episode, the disciples go, who is this man? And Mark says they were terrified. So you're coming from that thinking, finally, maybe we can go to sleep, uh, wake up, eat some breakfast, have a nice breakfast by the sea. And as soon as Jesus hits the shore, this demon-possessed, screeching, screaming, naked man runs right up to Jesus. How scary is that? And of course, ancient audiences who are reading this aren't that much different than us. When we hear darkness, scary things are in the dark, right? Scary things are in the dark. So it's supposed to add to the tension in the darkness. And we get some background information on this man. He's not just somebody out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness that's detached to any group of people. No, there's a group of townspeople who know this man really well. They know him well. They have experience with him. He has been so violent, so crazy, running around their town that they have have captured him and they've tried to tie him up. But he breaks three free from the rope. And a bunch of the groups of townsmen fight, get together and say, well, that's not enough. we got to chain this guy up. They grab him. They force him down. They try to chain him up so he's not running around wild, being dangerous toward everybody. And he breaks free of those chains. So what we're dealing with here, and the townsfolk obviously know, they're dealing with somebody who's not a normal person. There's something supernatural going on here. You remember the sentence I told you to to underline, right? No one could subdue this man. No one could capture this man. No one knew what to do with this man. No one's strong enough. No one's smart enough. While they couldn't capture him, they were able to drive him off from the town into the tombs nearby. Get that picture in your brain. These tombs 
would have been a system of caves that the people of the area have, have used to, to bury their dead, to store dead bodies. Every once in a while, every once in a while, the poorest of the poor with no other options would have to find shelter among the dead bodies. Isn't that a, isn't that a perfect analogy for how the poorest of the poor have to deal with their lives? That perfect analogy with this demon-possessed, shrieking, naked, cutting-himself man, we take him to a place where they're dead bodies. Not quite human. Not human anymore. But even out of town, even out of the town, he was still a menace to this community. Says night and day he could be heard shrieking. The shrieking, the agony of a man tormented and controlled by demons. You hear him shrieking, and when you catch a glimpse from him, one of his favorite pastimes would be to cut himself with stones. So we've got a shrieking, nude, incredibly strong, terrifying, supernatural, something going on there, man who is now bloodying himself. Perhaps this is an attempt of, of the, the human involved. It perhaps is an attempt of him to, to bring an end to his torment, to destroy himself Maybe what I think is more convincing is that many pagan rituals of the time involved mutilating yourself, whipping yourself, cutting yourself with stones in an attempt to wake the gods up so that they can, they can do something for your favor. And so we've got this man, what I, believe, what I believe he's doing is he is desperately calling out to the false gods. This is not a Jewish area. This is a Gentile. It's a pagan area. He's desperately calling out to false gods in an act of worship and an act of self-mutilation, spilling his own blood to, in desperation. Wake up, please, and save me from this. But of course, that poor man, there's no such salvation available in pagan gods. Can you imagine being in a religious system where... Your blood was required. I'm grateful we're in a religious system where Jesus' blood is required. What a gift that is. That we're not required for our own salvation. All we're required to do is embrace the free gift of grace that Jesus has displayed for us on the cross. So the man possessed by demons sees Jesus. As soon as Jesus' feet hit the, the ground. We've seen this before in the book of Mark. Demons know who Jesus is. It's kind of this f- sort of irony, uh, kind of chuckle to, to ourselves as we see that, that the disciples are with Jesus and what are they? They're terrified of Jesus. We just came across, so it's kind of a funny thing. They're terrified of Jesus. They don't really know who Jesus is, but you know who does know who Jesus is? The demons know who Jesus is. As soon as he hits his foot hits the ground, it's almost like something happens in the air, and the demon knows that Jesus, the demons know that Jesus is coming for them. The demons know who Jesus is because they once served Jesus. 
And they once worshipped Jesus as His angelic servants, as His messengers. They were close to Him. They know who He is. They know what He's about. They know what He has done and what He can do. They once loved Him and served Him, but they have rebelled against God. They've rebelled against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in their rebellion, Jesus has kicked them out of heaven. And so we see the demon approaching Jesus, falling on his knees, shrieking, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? You can see the juxtaposition of slicing yourself with with stones and hopes that, of salvation and that desperation and a desperate attempt. And then this man shows up and the demons that have been torturing you for who knows how long show up and fall on their face and are terrified of this man. You see the, the difference there? Something that's not working, has no way of working, and then this man walks up. Something is happening. I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Your translation might say, do not torture me. What have you to do with me? Literal translation, what have you and I in common? Or, why do you interfere with me? Probable implication of this is kind of a threat. Mind your own business. I solemnly charge you, Jesus, I adjure you by God, are you here to torment me? Are you here to torment us? Why are they terrified? They know the power of Jesus. They've tried to stand up to Him before. Why did he run to Jesus instead of running away from Jesus? I run away from things I'm afraid of. They don't run away from Jesus because there's, they know there's no escaping the will and the power of Jesus. If he's coming for them, there's no escape. That's the power of Jesus. They know that Jesus has promised to destroy all evil. They know that Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. They know that He is unstoppable and He is standing right in front of them. They know the battle is already over. It's already been decided. They know who the victor is. They know Jesus has defeated them and He has promised to fully and completely cleanse the creation of sin and evil someday. And they know that for them, that means someday He has promised to cast them into hell for all eternity. And they're scared that today is that day. Are you here to torture us? Are we thankful for the mercy and grace of God? That's not our story. Who are you? My name is Legion, for we are many. Legion, a legion was a military unit of four to 6,000 soldiers. 
They call themselves legion probably because they're acting like a military force that has captured and is destroying the image of God in this man. I don't think we have to talk about precise numbers like there's 4,000 or 6,000, but I think there's a good reason to understand this as a number that outnumbers the pigs on the hillside. And this is why the man is so strong and can break free from the chains. They probably call themselves legion as a boast to try to scare people. But the time, their time has not yet come. Their time has not yet come. Instead of destroying them, Jesus gives them permission to leave the man and to get into the pigs. The demons and the pigs immediately rush down the steep bank and the pigs are drowned in the sea. Can you imagine that picture? 2,000 dead pigs. A gruesome sight. And I think Mark wants us to clearly see two things. I think he wants us to see the 2,000 pigs are there to display the huge number of demons we're talking about. I think, I think we would have trouble believing the number of demons and the townsfolk would have trouble believing the number of demons involved, the, the spiritual darkness involved, unless they were, all the pigs were possessed and then they're all destroyed. I think this is important for us to see. 2,000 demons. A legion of demons. We need to see the weight of that. The amount of that. The amount of darkness. It's an army of demons. And we need to see this as Jesus defeating the army. Jesus is not worth one demon. That's what we've seen so far. We've seen Jesus versus the demon. That's pretty good, Jesus. You got him. One-on-one, Jesus could take care of him. But what if we throw an army of demons at Jesus? What happens now? Has he got to call in reinforcements? Is Jesus going to get in the boat and go away and say, hey, I can take on one, maybe two, but we got 3,000 of them over there. I can't do it. Is that what we're dealing with? No. Jesus is unstoppable. No matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, no matter the number, Jesus is unstoppable. So Christians, if He says He will make everything right for you in eternity, what's going to happen? All things are going to work out for your good. Christian, if He tells you He will not leave you or forsake you, if that's His will, can anyone thwart the will of Jesus? No, He's with you. He's with you. Can anything separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord? No, not even an army of demons can separate you from the love of Jesus. His will will not be thwarted, period. So we see that. That's one of the reasons that we see the 2,000. The other reason, I think, is that the destruction of the pigs demonstrates the ultimate intentions of evil of sin and evil the ultimate intention the ultimate function of these things is to destroy the creation of god they detest the creator they can't touch the creator and so they will do all that they can to destroy his creation so then we see the herdsmen flee and report to their bosses report to the people what has happened 
And the townsfolk come down. Can you imagine the sight that they're seeing? Some of them own those pigs. You, you see the pigs in the water. You see the man that you've tried to chain up sitting over there clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. You see that man. You put two and two together. Okay? Jesus has given them a true parable that's played out right before them. And this was their response. They were afraid. The radical transformation of the man was so striking that they were immediately terrified of Jesus. Is that a bad thing? It's not a bad thing. It's kind of a human thing. If we see the power of Jesus, we're right in front of it. It's probably a human thing to be terrified. It's not, a, it's not the complete way to respond to Jesus. But it's not a bad way to respond to Jesus. So the idea, the question in their mind is, how powerful must this man, Jesus, be? Remember that sentence from before? No one could stop that man who is demon-possessed. No one could bind that man who is demon-possessed. No one could control him. No one could change him. No one could convince him otherwise. No one could kill him. None of these things. Somebody can. The strong man who breaks the chains, who was possessed by a legion, an army of demons, was transformed and freed by Jesus, the truly strong man. So townspeople were afraid. Echoing what we saw from the disciples, the last chapter, who could this man be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who can this man be that the strongest man was bound by Jesus? Who could Jesus be that he could bind a man like that? But unfortunately, the disciples feared Jesus correctly and they're with Jesus. The townsfolk saw Jesus correctly as powerful and what did they do instead? They ran from Jesus. And we're supposed to look at that and say, what are you doing? The demons ran to Jesus. You're running away from Jesus? You don't run away from a man like that. They were afraid and they were angry. The pigs were their livelihood. They were more concerned about their pocketbooks and about the pigs than for the man. And they pathetically begged Jesus to leave. Leave me alone. Evidence of the power of Jesus to save. Evidence of the power of Jesus to overcome demons was right before them. Who would love that kind of image? That's a life-changing image to see. And instead of embracing Jesus as King and Lord and God in the flesh, they beg Him to leave. Leave us alone. Now the man naturally begs Jesus to let him become one of his disciples. Follow him. Literally, he begged that he might be with him. Please, Jesus, let me be with you. Jesus says no, but instructs the man to go back to his home and to declare what God has done. 
in a pagan area, pagan zone, pagan people, pagan cities. This is probably the first missionary effort into another culture. You've got some Jews that are coming across in boats, and this is the missionary effort. This man is now going to preach the good news of Jesus. Jesus tells him to preach what Yahweh, what God has done. What Yahweh has done. Jesus wants to be very careful if He preaches what a man has done. The pagans might think, well, there's just some great magician somewhere. No, Jesus wants this man to preach God has done this. And that's true, isn't it? Jesus is God and man. Jesus wants them to know Israel's God has accomplished this. Seek out this man in Israel's Scriptures. Seek out this God in Israel over the sea. Seek this man out. And so this man obeyed Jesus and preached in the Decapolis, which is a group of ten towns. And Mark says that many marveled at what this man said. Amazing. First church planter, first missionary, first evangelist, first who knows what. This demon-possessed man. That's true. What on earth from your past could disqualify you from preaching the good news to your neighbors? Nothing in the world. Okay, how do we apply this to ourselves? How do we, how do we see that? How do we take this incredible story about the saving power of Jesus and apply it to ourselves? First thing that we need to see is that the function of sin and the forces of evil is to destroy and distort the image of God in mankind. The purpose of sin, if sin had a brain, its will would be to distort and destroy the image of God in you. And that's the purpose of demons. What does that mean? Image of God. What does that mean? It is the precious gift of God that humanity, every single human who's ever lived, has been created in God's image. Nothing else on earth is created in the image of God. We see this in Genesis right at the beginning as God creates the world, as He creates mankind. He says this, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Wow. Just men? So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. We are all created in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? Are you just like God? We were teaching this to Bailey one day, and we said, are you just like God? It's like, put your hand out there and try to create an elephant right there. You know, try to... She did it for a while. No, can't do it. I don't think you can do it either. We're not created to be just like God, obviously. We are created in His image. What does that mean? Humans reflect, in the image of God, humanity reflects God's nature in our rationality, our, our creativity, our nobility, our ingenuity. Your dog might be really smart, but he's really smart for a dog. He's not smarter than a person. Well, he might be smarter than some people, but no, he's not. No, he's not. He's not. He's not. He's not. 
This means, this nature that God has put in us means that we can create art, architecture, we can do science, we can do technology, we can do philosophy, we can do theology, we can do music. Be made in the image of God. Humans also reflect God's image, God's nature. We're the image of God in our relationships, in our ability to self-sacrifice, in our ability to love our capacity to work for the good of others, our long-suffering, all these things in our relationships reflect being made in the image of God. We see this clearly in Scripture. Many of our commands to love one another directly reference and reflect God's love. Made in the image of God. So, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives like what? Like Christ loved the church. Why does it say that? Because you're made in God's image. You have the capacity to love your wife like God has loved the church. Think about that. Jesus says in John 13, love one another as I have loved you. We have the capacity to love one another in the same way Jesus loves us. Think about that. Being made in the image of God. Many of our commands and our reflections of God comes in God's commands for our community. God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Many of our commands reflect this. Our love is about community. Community is godly. Hebrews 10, do not stop meeting together, church. Do not stop meeting together. Be in community with each other. It is not good for man to be alone as he creates Eve. It's not good for man to be alone. Community. Why? Because community reflects the image of God. And therefore, being made in the image of God means we take these reflections on the divine nature and we act as God's representative to the rest of creation. We are to rule creation on God's behalf as His image bearers, as His special creation made in His image. What are the implications of this? Every human life is incredibly valuable. Every human life is intrinsically valuable. That means in itself, as a bearer of the image of God, that life is valuable no matter what the culture says. Are you with me? Why? Because that life was made in the image of God. That's why believers must care about these things like racism. Why do believers have to care so much about racism? Because every person was made in the image of God. God is precious to us. So those people are precious to us. That's why we needed to attack things like the sex trade or pornography or human trafficking, or mass starvation, or poverty, or homelessness, or immigration, or refugees, or abortion. All of these things are important to God's people. Why? Because every single person has intrinsic value because they're created in the image of God. 
So this is important. Be made in the image of God because that, that means every person has value and we must treat every person like they have intrinsic value. And it's important because every human then has a responsibility to reflect the nature of God in their life. So one way to talk about sin is when I do not reflect the nature of God in my life, I am sinning. When I'm squandering the nature of God in, my, in me, it is sin. To sin is to appear to represent God counter to His nature. So when I'm not loving my wife like Christ loved me, I am, I am acting in a way that is counter to who God is, and so I'm bearing an image of God who is, that is false. And so, image of God bearers, that man who was demon-possessed was a bearer of the image of God. And so the demonic, the enemies of God, hate the image of God in mankind. And so demon possession is dedicated to the destruction of God's image in that individual. We see this in the possessed man. Inhuman shrieking, living like an animal, living among the dead. Human relationships totally shattered. Self-destruction, irrationality, violence. All these things were being done and manipulated by the demons in order to destroy the image of God in that man. And the image of God, the enemy hates Sin hates the image of God. And so the demon-possessed man is an extreme example of the spiritual condition of all mankind. In our sinfulness, we have distorted the image of God in us. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verse 3 in which you used to walk when you conformed to the ways of this world. Who are we to conform to? The image of God. But Paul writes that we have conformed to the image of this world and to the ruler of the power of the air. Who is that? That is Satan. We've conformed to the world and we have conformed to what the demons are aspiring to do. We have all lived among them at one time in the cravings of our flesh, indulging in its desires and thoughts. He says, like the rest, we are by nature, by who we are on the inside, by who we are deep down, we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature children of wrath instead of by nature the pure image bearers of God. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are not bearing the image of God. It has been distorted in us. It has been twisted in us through our sinfulness. Isaiah 64.6 says it this way, we all, you think you're perfect? You think you are a perfect bearer of the image of God? You think you've got it all figured out? You think you've earned your salvation? This is what Isaiah 64.6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And that's the PG version of that. I'll whisper the R-rated one after the service if you ask nicely. We all fade like a leaf 
and our sins like the wind take us away. So we are not to see and read the demon-possessed man and go, that poor guy over there, I'm glad I'm not him. Scripture says if we knew ourselves in the depths of our sinfulness, we would all understand that we are that man. Due to our sinfulness and the work of the enemy, the image of God within us is being distorted, twisted, and mangled. And so we are stuck with cutting ourselves with stones in desperate in desperate attempts to be good enough, or we're cutting ourselves with stones in desperate attempts to be our own God or to satisfy our own desires. We're, in des- we're cutting ourselves with bad, with unholy relationships or unholy practices in some kind of way to desperately feel human again or to fill this hole within us with something. We are desperately crying out to false gods, whether they're bank accounts or, or, or good or better jobs or better spouses or better homes or better kids or better whatever we think we need. We're cutting ourselves a desperate plea to gods who don't exist to save us. What hope then do we have? The function of sin and the enemy is to distort the image of God in us. But the free gift of Jesus is to restore the image of God in men and restore man to God Himself for all who repent and believe. Mark is revealing what it looks like for Jesus to conquer sin and the forces of evil in the life of a man or a woman. When Jesus brings salvation, when Jesus saves, He produces a drastic transformation. Jesus brings a drastic change to the life of one who repents and believes. Drastic change. Jesus comes and He empowers us once again to begin to act like an image bearer of God. He teaches us what that looks like. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church as an image bearer of God. Teaches us what that looks like, and he empowers us to do that through the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life, Christian. We see this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 11. He says it this way Or do you not know? Man, the American church would be so much more loving if we get this verse in our hearts. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Does anybody not see themselves in that paragraph? We're all in there. We're all in the tombs with that man. Paul says, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. 
you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. You were in the tombs. You were living a life to yourself. You were living a life of a twisted and mangled image bearer of God. That was you. That was me. We were in the tombs, but we were washed by Jesus. He came to that man he picked him up. He washed the dried blood off. He washed the dirt off him. He gave him clothes. He, you were Christian. You were washed. Non-believer, He is willing to wash you clean from your sins. He, Paul says you were sanctified. That means you are being made holy. That means Jesus comes to us when we are saved and we repent and believe. And He begins to straighten out that image of God in us that has been so mangled. That's what sanctified means. Being made holy. He is doing that in our lives. And we have been justified by Jesus. In the courtroom of God where we are all guilty, we have been justified. We have been declared perfectly righteous and innocent in the courtroom of God because Jesus has died on the cross and wiped away our sins and His blood covers our sins and His righteousness is being accredited to us. We are justified. So when Jesus saves... The man who screeched and screamed and cut himself and was violent and was rejected is now totally transformed. Drastic transformation when we are saved. And drastic transformation is evidenced by devoted obedience. The man didn't say, Thank you, Jesus. I feel much better now. I like wearing clothes. That's great stuff. I'll see you later. I'm heading back to the tombs. We don't see that. What do we see? We see devoted obedience. Let me be with you. Drastic transformation from Jesus is evidenced by devoted obedience. My friends, if there is no meaningful difference between now and before you were saved, we need to ask why. It might indicate you are still lost and in the tombs. For those of us who are saved at a young age, here's a better one. If there's no meaningful difference between my life and the life of a lost person in the world, we must ask why. It could very well be that I am still in the tombs. Because when Jesus saves, there's a drastic transformation and the drastic transformation is evidenced by devoted obedience. And finally, drastic transformation is evidenced by devoted obedience which includes, Christians, which always includes a proclamation of the good news of Jesus. The man is saved Jesus casts the demons out, frees the man. The image of God is being restored in that man's life. He comes to Jesus and says, take me with you. Jesus says, I've got another mission for you. Go to those ten cities. Proclaim the good news. 
The man didn't say, well, I don't really see myself in that position, Jesus. I really would be more comfortable over here. I'd be more comfortable with you. I'd really rather, no, he doesn't see that. What do, what do we see? We see devoted obedience. Whatever you ask me to do, Jesus, I will do. Whatever you ask, I will do. We so easily lose the sense of amazement by what Jesus has done in our lives to free us from the consequences and mastery of sin and death and hell. We forget what that's like. My friends, we serve a good and gracious God. Did you notice this man didn't get in a boat, come search for Jesus. Jesus came to get him. Did you notice that? There's no, this man did not, did not say, well, I'm going to be transformed first and then Jesus will accept me. That's not what happened. What happened? He was in desperate need of salvation. He was overwhelmed with his sinfulness. He was overwhelmed with the spirits of darkness. No way could he have saved himself. No way could he earn it. And Jesus has come and gave him a free gift of salvation. My friends, the same offer is for you. So we're going to call for you if you have not followed Jesus. If your life has not been drastically transformed, evidenced by devoted obedience, that's not true of you. We're going to call you. Same thing we've heard Jesus do all since we've been through Mark. Repent and believe the good news that Jesus saves sinners.